Welcome to The Last Supper, your weekly podcast about art in Asia. I'm your host, Oscar Venhuis. Every weekend, I sit down and release an episode bringing new perspectives and engaging dialogues with emerging and established artists, galleries, curators, and collectors in Asia. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's Education in-person and virtual art courses, gallery visits, and webinars. Visit Christie's Education website and enter all in capital letters Last Supper 15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's Education can also be found in the description of this podcast. In today's episode of The Last Supper, I meet researcher and curator Michelle Wong and we talk about her PhD research. We discuss her work on Hong Kong artist Ha Big Chung, Big Egos and the weird sculpture in Aberdeen in Hong Kong. Michelle, welcome to The Last Supper and thank you for coming over today. Great, thanks for having me. How are you today? Very good. Had a couple of coffees before I came down. Actually, you live quite close, close by, so it's a very easy commute oh i didn't realize how close is that five minutes of stairs oh wow that's really close <laughs> yeah i've been around this area for a number of years including the ones that i worked when i was at asia Art archive let's begin with your background as a researcher and curator what can you say about who michelle wong is sure well i'm currently a phd student at the university of hong kong in the art history department and this is my final year And before going back to school, I worked at Asia Art Archive for close to, no, actually eight years. I work in the research department, sort of looking at Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. Eight years at the Asia Art Archive, that is really amazing. Yeah, it's my entire adult life. (laughs) Was that your first job as well in the arts? Sort of, yeah. I did a short stint, like a few months at the Hong Kong U, TAing for the journalism school which I've never studied journalism before. They just needed someone. So I said, I'll do it. And they tried to keep me. I'm like, no, going for another job. See you later. And what initiated or triggered you to consider a PhD research program? That's an interesting question. I always thought I would go to a PhD. In fact, I had only planned to stay at AA for a year. I had applied for graduate school to return to the States. Um, But for the better... I ended up not going and only sort of go back to school recently. You've been here a lot longer than one year. That was your initial plan. So what kept you here? My family, because my family's from here. I was born and raised here. The friends that I eventually have made and the many changes that the city has gone through. I've been through all of the protests. I was like, I'm here. <laughs> so you made a very deliberate choice to stay in Hong Kong during these very tumultuous years in Hong Kong and the reason why I'm asking that because a lot of people left but you chose to stay um, yeah probably I think but um, I'm also ready to leave anytime I have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact the last supper is offered to you at zero cost and if you like this show about art in Asia Give this podcast a star rating or subscribe to this podcast channel. Many thanks and let's continue. Let's talk about your research that you are currently conducting. What can you tell me about your art subject and domain that you have spent the last few years on? 
Well, my research is on Hong Kong art history with a focus on this particular artist. His name is Habik Chun, who's, you know, collection of stuff I worked on when I was at AAA. So then this is a, a very different approach from when I was Asia Art Archive, which is very much a resource-making approach. This is then a, a monographic study looking at his creative life and its relationship to Hong Kong and the modernity that was emerging um, at the time in the mid-20th century. Describe to me what you mean by monographic. So it only looks at his works and his life in particular, instead of a, a multiple artist or multiple people um, project. So it's a deep dive into one person's um, creative oeuvre, the way that that person interacted with the world around him, how he uh, worked with vernacular material and all of that, yeah. So there's no comparative research involved at all? There there are, it, I wouldn't say it's a sort of a, a comparison of A and B, but you would look into what's around him and sort of smaller comparisons of that as a way to deepen your understanding of that one subject. It's really fascinating how you decided to focus on a single person, Habik Chun. Was this an artist you wanted to focus on at the start of your research, or did this idea emerge during the study? No, I went in knowing it would be like this. Um, also because beca- before going back to school, I've worked on this collection of materials with my former colleagues, many of them my friends, for years. I think the first time I started looking into those materials was 2014. So it just made sense to go deep that way. It's also very old school, and I like old school. (laughs) And so it's kind of strange. So I enjoy this kind of old school method of working more than I thought I would. And sort of finding out in the process that I'm quite well suited for it. (laughs) You refer to an old-school way of working. What exactly is the old-school approach? Well, maybe my new school is also old because I'm just kind of old-fashioned, right? Comparisons or, you know, like multiple speculative projects or comparing different artists across space and time, sort of thematic way of looking at things. A lot of the the curatorial sort of way of looking and doing things would be very, very different from this uh, traditional art history, monographic, look at this person's life approach. But I guess the thing with a lot of um, research around Hong Kong's art history is that there isn't enough of this kind of old school monographic studies. You've spoken to Dr. Kuhn. Um, She would probably also say that but she has a very different approach yeah and why do you think monographic research is limited in hong kong well that's just my experience and sort of my thinking around it it's it's hard Um, materials are difficult to come by Um, you sort of have to be the right person at the right time encountering the right things right i think if i weren't working on habik chin's materials at asia archive I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And if I hadn't met him when I was 16, I wouldn't know this material exists and work on it years later. Oh, so you met the artist Habik Chun? Yeah, yeah, I knew him. Uh, my father knew him personally.
Interesting how you met the artist when you were a teenager, and today you write an entire research paper on him. So the early meeting was the first little seed that contributed to your decision to focus on this work. I think so. Unfortunately, unfortunately, right? I think when you are a teenager, certain things sort of stay with you. And visiting his studio at that time—that was before I went abroad—that definitely stayed with me. I didn't know I would come back and and work on it years later, but when that did happen, I was like, "Oh, okay, it sort of made sense." Yeah. Can you still recall the visit with Habik Chun, and what do you remember about it? You know, when you are younger, your parents tell you to do things, and you have to do it. So my dad was like, "We're going there." I was like. Okay, why are we going there? Why are we walking nine flights of stairs? But I've always enjoyed sort of going around with my dad, who's an artist also, and sort of vaguely remember that clutter in Habik Chun's studio, which really didn't change years later when we were working on that studio. And it's kind of you know people have their traits of obsessions, and that sort of stuck with me. And of course, I filed that memory away for a long time. When I went abroad, studied, sort of changed tracks. I was going to be an economist, and realized I was suck at math. <laughs> I was like, why did I think that? And then sort of found my way back here in art history after being trained in music and philosophy. Have you ever tried to follow your father's footsteps of becoming an artist as well? No. And why is that? I'm. Not particularly drawn to being an artist. You need a really big ego. I don't think I have that. Oh, that's an interesting viewpoint. Do you believe your dad has a big ego? Uh, some parts of it. I think every artist you have to be、uh, self-centered enough. Depends on what kind of artist you want to be. Yeah, I think. Of the artists, all of them that I know,、uh, there's something that keeps them in doing what they're doing, and it's in- inexplicable. You know, it's intuitive, it's obsessive. They don't know what else to do. They cannot but do it. Is that really different from academia? Well, I'm finding out about it. I think it's quite different, or it it has the potential to be quite different. Egos are similar. I hope it doesn't get cut into the version that goes. <laughs> I would like to have a job later. I think maybe it's also sometimes about my dad, who you know is in his seventies and has a very different understanding of the art world from what I understand and experience. And also seeing my friends and people I've worked with, some of them in Hong Kong, many of them not here, and just seeing how the art world works. Right? I like to joke that the analogy, the closest analogy, is the entertainment world, which you know has its perks. But also can sometimes not be very pretty. What other parallels do you see with the arts and the entertainment industry? I, I don't know the entertainment industry particularly well, but I think the the focus on celebrities, status, on stars, on sort of having to look a certain way or present yourself a certain way, confidence, all of that seems to be one way of. Surviving the art world, or one particular art world, I think there are many art worlds. Of course, artists are being stereotyped in the media and movies and films that you see. However, you don't really see that many artists wearing t 
tailored suits. I guess that's what made Habeck Chin so interesting, right? Because he came from a working class family. Uh, he was born in 1925 in Guangdong, sort of lost most of his family members during the Sino-Japanese War and had to sort of reinvent his life multiple times throughout his 80-odd year life, right? He moved to Hong Kong via Macau in the 50s, by then already had a young family and they started making paper flowers already in Macau and sort of started a small business, migrated to Hong Kong. And from that sort of craft making road, I guess, sort of made a sideways shift and went into the art world. But he never, say for example, compared to his peers um, like Zhang Yi or Man Lao, Van Lao, who's from Vietnam, they went to college. Habeck never finished secondary school. And so then how he turned this otherwise sort of a, a foundation, well, not really, his sort of foundation in craftsmanship and turned that into part of his creative strategy was quite interesting. And I find him as an artistic or artist figure really fascinating is because he was set on fashioning himself as an artist in very different ways as compared to his peers. And one of the ways that he did it was through photography. He would photograph himself with his works, with other people's works. And when he got his camera, on camera in 1980, he started photographing other people. So the camera then became sort of almost an extension of himself uh, as his artist persona. And a lot of people found that very low toll. It's like so old fashioned, so not cool, but like, he didn't care. And so I found that, I wouldn't say inspiring, but it's fascinating for me and I want to find out more. And yeah, he's a very different modernist as compared to a lot of the ones that we know. Do you happen to know what his motivation was to photograph himself? I think it's self-promotion and a drive to self-learn. He was a big pack rat. Uh, a hoarder, accumulator of things. And photography is just one way of very efficiently accumulating images. I was like, okay. So I think it's a combination of that, which actually makes it super interesting. Would it be fair to say that Habik Chun was the very first dedicated selfie artist in Hong Kong? Oh, totally. Totally. And he had these sort of L-shaped pieces of paper that would like frame things that he wanted to photograph or re-photograph, say like books and whatnot. So thinking about framing, about being seen at the right place, at the right time, very much so. You've spent several years researching the body of work by Habeck Chun. How would you describe it? Well, Habeck mostly worked in sculptures and in printmaking and also did a lot of ink painting later in life. But I think he's better known, at least for me, I find it more compelling. Uh, His work's more compelling in sculptural and printmaking forms. They're very rich in texture, often made from found materials, kind of Duchampian, but not really. So he would collect things from different places, from different times, and, you know, when the right moment comes, put them together. Um, they're also very flat. Uh, they're always just like frontal 
But I think that's probably because he worked a lot on um, relief surfaces. He used to also design restaurant ceiling designs and all that. So they're very things that are viewed from mostly only one perspective or one direction. And he would work with different textures, uh, manipulate them, and then lay them on as layers. And uh, in one particular uh, form, it's called the motherboard, uh, which is a print matrix. Do you know what a print matrix is? No. A print matrix is, I guess, the the surface from which you make prints. And usually, there's a printing press involved, and then the print matrix surface, where then there are different textures on it, or you engrave, or you add things to that surface to compose an image, and you ink it. You add ink to it, color, and whatnot. And then place a piece of paper or whatever surface you would like the image to transfer over, and then run it through a roller press usually. But Habichin's printing process doesn't involve a press, so it involves pounding with different kinds of tools. So it's again very labor intensive and very sort of craftsman like. And so that's sort of what I draws a lot of my attention as I study in it because I haven't actually seen most of these things. Uh, when I was working at AA, we worked on mostly his archive, his collection of materials, the exhibitions that he documented, which spanned fifty years. But the the creative practice itself, you know, ran a parallel track that is linked to the photography, the documentation, but just had a very different tactility. In my mind, I'm trying to create a picture how he would work. What you describe is that similar to stamping or stenciling, or can you speak more about his methods?、Mm, similar stamping, yeah, you can say that Habichin's process is much more complicated than that. It's called a colograph,、um, which then. He also did it in quite quite unconventional ways. Is that it's multiple layers of paper, and there are specific areas that would get different kinds of attention in terms of extra paper or extra textures and pigments. So it's a combination of stamping, pounding, sculpting, and painterly techniques, and all of that gets flattened onto one surface, and you wouldn't be able to tell. It's quite fascinating. If the end result is flattened. Can you explain to me what the benefit is to have those multiplex of techniques? It's very enigmatic. So you end up seeing an image that looks very simple, deliberately naive. That's also how I would describe his work, but draws you to look at it closer, and you're actually not really able to tell what he did. And you're like, oh, this patch is brown, but then it turns bright blue, but it's the same surface, and it doesn't look like it was painted. So then, it actually is a really good case to make for close looking in terms of art history. Is you really got to look very closely to sort of realize what he might have done, and also it was a his printmaking practice was his bread and butter. He fed his whole family of five children, sort of mostly through selling prints, and so it was sort of like a, a trade secret and not really known how it's done. How did you discover the various techniques he applied? Because I assume that he wasn't on YouTube explaining it. One of his sons is his assistant, and、uh, he's been very generous in terms of sharing what he remembers. 
And do you know if his son is an artist as well, or what is he up to at the moment? He is now retired, but he started a studio to teach people to make violins. So he's also somewhat of a craftsman. You are in your final year of your research, and what do you find the most compelling periods, if this is possible to explain at all, of the artist Habik Jun? I'm. I find in general things from the '60s to the '70s, early '80s, very fascinating in Hong Kong, or just in the world in general. So for me, Habik Jun's work in the '60s and the '70s were really quite fascinating. But then his sculptures in the 2000s are also very interesting. But it's because it incorporates the the materials that he collected 20 years before he made the work. Yeah, I think all of it is very interesting. So to answer your earlier question before we started recording, like, am I tired of it yet? No, cannot possibly be tired of it. Of course, there are days that I just want to smash my computer. But it's such a privilege, I feel, and I know this. To be able to tell a story in multiple ways, and I've you know been in processes of telling his story, Habichun's story as an archivist, quote unquote. Because now I was that an archive? I don't think so anymore. And to be able to sort of tell another version of that life story, I think it's an incredible privilege. Besides documenting and archiving his work, is there a specific research area that you are focusing on? And if so, can you speak more about this? I think one of the foundational questions that have started this research is a interest in complicating some of the normative or dominant narratives from that time to say like, oh, Hong Kong is a place that where East and West meet. And like, but what does that mean? Like, what is East or what is West? So a lot of the, I think that is one sort of really important perspective that I. Have always wanted to take, and the research that I do is things are not as simple as they seem. There are reasons why these narratives take place or they took off, and I would advocate that there are more nuances in it. And part of the work is to tell a better story. That you know, it's not to reject the narratives that's been there. You know, there's a reason why it flew, but just to say, actually, this is why. That happened, and I think that's why the perspective has been very much about modernity, or the kind of modernity that was emerging from Hong Kong in Hong Kong, where there were so many kinds of ideas from all over the world converging、um, through publications, through exhibitions, through people's personal histories that they often don't tell, or they prefer to not tell. Because of various reasons, for political reasons, for economic reasons, for their own desires. So when you actually find, put these different pieces together, Hong Kong is a much more cosmopolitan place than we sort of were told in the '60s, or it is not. I don't know. Like it's you know like in the '60s, Manila was a much more developed place than Hong Kong, and artists used to exhibit in Manila in the '60s. And so I'm. Invested in resurfacing these kind of narratives that would make our story of Hong Kong so just ring a different and have a different ring because it's it's actually much more complicated. 
So it's not a purely research on the artist's work, but also about the history of Hong Kong. Yeah, of course. I mean, he made Hong Kong his home. It has got to be about the city as well. When you reviewed his work, what kind of inspiration sources was he drawn to or were there specific themes he attempted to address? Mm, yeah, he was very into musical instruments or sort of representing music visually. And also there are these otherworldly creatures that look like aliens that keep appearing in the different works. I'm like, okay, that's got to be a recurring cast of characters. And also sort of this awareness of working from the present and sort of wanting to inherit a past of Chinese ancient past, but being in Hong Kong where other ideas are also emerging. Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's a lot of layering of things. And I think for Ha or looking at Ha Bik Chun as, a, as an artist, things are sometimes very literal, but in its being literal, you also... Again, you see that sort of deliberate naivete. Things are actually more complicated and um, it's in the way that he manipulated material in ways that he didn't share. So then I almost feel that the, the images that we read from his work are almost deceptive. It pretends to be quite simple, but the process is so complicated and there's a lot to say about that. Have you attempted to replicate this technique to get a better understanding of his working methods? No. I understand the techniques. I, Yeah, people ask me that quite often, actually. But I'm like, well, maybe that can be something after I finish the writing or it can be an ac activity that accompanies some other exhibition. But for one reason or another, I'm quite intent on focusing on just writing. I, I want to tell the story through the writing. If we look beyond these techniques and work, what else have you uncovered during the last three years? Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> That's the thing about being in the field, right? In doing field work is you go to places that are so weird. I've been in Aberdeen looking at a weird sculpture with my friends, with Osge. Actually, I dragged her with me. I was like, look at that. I'm like, oh, weird. What was so weird or remarkable about this sculpture? Well, John Batten has also done a lot of research into it. In fact, he did an exhibition at Spring Workshop a number of years ago that also looked at that sculpture. It's a public sculpture on private property in Aberdeen, Aberdeen Center, Hong Kong Zai Zhongsam. And it's just this weird monumental steel sculpture in the middle of a Chinese courtyard which now is full of shops and lights and people. Um, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. It, it just doesn't fit. But it was a big deal when Habichun won a competition to be commissioned to build this work. You got to go see it. It's so flat. These things are just like flat like this. I'm really curious now. How would you describe it? It's a very stable composition. It's a sort of triangular composition. The top of it is a circular disc. The work is called Sailing in the Sun. Circular disc, sort of oblique circle, dark red, and it sits on top of two curved pieces of steel. 
and it, the whole thing is around six or seven meters tall. Curved steel, and it has these cuts in the middle that make you think that, oh, did they do something wrong with it? But actually, it, I think it's meant to be like leaf veins or like the skeleton of a sail. But just because it's sort of low quality steel, it just looks kind of strange. And it sits in the middle of a big water feature in between two pairs of Chinese gates, pavilions and whatnot. So it's like, okay. And now, since it's been, what, three, four decades since it's been built, much more things, many more things are built around it now. Sky High, skyscrapers, shops, McDonald's, Watson's, and people. People sit around it all the time. And there are light features that goes from its top to the other lampposts. And you're like, what is happening? Have you been able to ask the local residents what they think about this work? No, I have not. I was too in shock or sort of too embarrassed almost because everyone's having a good time. Like people are chilling, like they took off their shoes. You know, it's just like in a park and there's these weird things and no one seemed to mind it. And uh, yeah, I have habitually kept the construction drawings of the sculpture when he was working with the architect firm and Wong Bo Wonpo, who actually is the property owner of that patch of land. And I remember when John Batten was doing the exhibition, we scanned the construction drawings and made photocopies of it. And as we wrapped the Habichun archive project up, we were moving out. And of course, when you're moving out, you, you, you throw, a lot, throw away a lot of things. And my, my former colleagues were, oh, let's just throw these construction drawings away. I was like, no, 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 I'll keep them, I'll keep them. It'll be useful for me someday. And six years, or maybe five years later, I'm like sitting on my apartment floor, ro- unrolling these huge construction drawings. It's like, well, now I know what's it for. And then I realized I have no sense of scale. Also, I had to call my architect friends. So how do I actually read this? I don't understand. But it was really, it was fun. It was a nice sort of full circle moment. As a researcher, and this is a little bit of a different subject, but you have to write a lot. What I find really remarkable is that some people have the ability to translate, let's say, a song into a sculpture or a poem into a dance performance. And let's say a, a critique or a curator also translates one domain in a, into a very different domain. Yeah, I guess. Oh, it, it reminds me of a situation that I was a witness of many years ago in London at a conference about uh, exactly this issue of translating of across visual arts and music. I think it was a painting of a Czech painter painting a fugue. And the musicologist there was fuming. I was like, how, what? Because a fugue is a, is a particular structure. It has a particular grammar. There are rules that you follow. There are things that you can do and cannot do. It's like, how? Like, I guess... Some, whether then, I guess, some people, when we say translate, it's we're actually talking more about a, a metaphorical relationship well, rather than an analogous relationship, a one-to-one sort of translation. And uh, I'll never forget that moment. Yes, it's a metaphorical translation and a very complex undertaking how each of us create meaning out of this. Yeah, and the parameters at work 
is different for every situation. It's not an absolute sort of one-for-one meaning-making. Certain liberties are, are taken often. Talk about liberties. I sometimes wonder why in galleries and museums we always have a written artist statement or introduction. Sometimes there are audio introductions available as well, but as a curator, have you explored different approaches as well? I think bi- biographies are also a really interesting form. Like you, you can at, at least I've asked some of my artist friends, would you mind if we don't write your artist biographies in the way that people usually do? Like we're not going to mention exhibitions, collections and whatnot. And most of the time I was like, yeah, great, not interested in that. Tell me something else. I think it's always interesting when other people write about who you are and it's not these kind of accolades and sort of moments of value making. You know, in my curatorial practice, I think I, I take the liberties because it is different from an academic uh, realm or a, a research realm as such. I was just actually just thinking how I have quite consciously kept these two line of work not separate but in, it's a very it's in a different tone um, in the curatorial practice I care a lot more about being companions of the people with whom I work I mean I'm still also a companion of a dead artist and the stuff but I feel the the conversations that we have are different and the stakes are different because the field is different in art history in graduate school in scholarship there are certain things that you have to do in order for the work to be respected or in order for the work to reach a certain kind of quality. And in the curatorial, the, those parameters are by default more ambiguous and there's more room to experiment. Do you feel you have more freedom when you create a show? Yes and no. It's great to work with an artist who doesn't talk back, who's dead. <laughs> What about if the, is still <laughs> the ones who are living, they have opinions, which I love. Academic research is very rigid for a very good reason. So I can imagine that your curatorial practice provides you the freedom to explore and experiment with formats that you may not be able to do during your doctoral studies. I think so. Two friends and I, we uh, started a new art space last year called New Park. So it's with South Ho and Billy Kwok. It's in JCCAC, San Gong Yun. It's a reincarnation of self's uh, project from many years ago, maybe six, seven years ago, called square, 100 Square Feet Park, which was an artist-run space, which literally was 100 square feet. And the, the metaphor of a park is then it's a place of leisure, it's a place of expression, of liberties taken, of gathering, so we decided to do this again, especially since 2019. We deserve something for ourselves. And um, the ethos behind it is really just to have a good time and also, uh, in some ways, look at art a little more old-fashionedly. Very formal people, as in we were interested in form um, and exploring form together. So what we do is we're on the seventh floor of JCCAC, and what we do are always solo exhibitions of one work um, by an artist and we help produce the work too so it's sort of like a workshop and studio where everyone would need something different and we are happy to provide it uh, 
the series we call it one hit wonder so we only show one work we may or may not show it again you may not or may or may not be able to show again whatnot uh, so there's a certain kind of humor in it let's dive into the final question of today so if you were to have your final supper who would you advise and what would you discuss during your final meal hmm. just one um i would invite the group of friends who i spent my birthday with this year uh some of most of them are in the arts, an artist, a documentary filmmaker, sort of a, a sound artist, researcher, a human rights lawyer. What would we talk about China? Uh, <laughs> talk about China a lot. Yeah, then we'll talk about film. And I think in, in film, it's also this sort of curiosity of what we would leave behind or what would remain right after the end of the world yeah i think so i think we would end up end up talking about art a lot about art about film about processes recording yeah i think when whenever we gather i think we treat it like a last supper because you never know when you'll see people again or when you won't see people again and i think you know i'm also speaking for myself there, there will be moments where you don't see the people again. And every conversation, when it's good, is worth having. So. Many thanks, Michelle, for sitting down with me today. And all the best with your final year of your PhD. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Last Supper with researcher and curator Michelle Wong. If you like this show about art in Asia, you can support us by giving this episode a star rating and subscribing to this podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions or wish to participate in this podcast, you can contact me on oscar at thelastsupper.asia. You can visit my website www.thelastsupper.asia as well or contact me direct on Instagram at thelastsupper.asia.